Hello, and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and today I'm very psyched to have Brian Chiambella uh, join us. Brian, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, good to catch up. So, Brian, you know, normally you're in New York, but a lot of the people I know from New York, I heard something like 90,000 people moved to East Hampton alone in like the month of March and April. Are you are you in the city again, or where are you these days? Uh, yeah, no, it was uh, definitely uh, everyone seemed to flee uh, a couple months ago, but uh, I was upstate for a little bit, but came back uh, about a month and a half ago. I think uh, city starting to starting to get some legs, so uh, we came back and uh, starting to do walking coffees in the city. Yeah, yeah, walking. So I'm in the valley. Walking meetings has been what's been happening, and sometimes you're walking you're like, dude, we're walking awfully close. I don't know if we're better off in. Uh, the conference room, but but it's cool. Okay, nice. Well, listen, so Brian, I'm going to kind of quickly go through some of your past venture experiences and then bring it up to now. But starting off, you founded your own company, right? Weren't you, didn't you have a venture backed company yourself? Was it Amped Fantasy? Is that right? Yeah. Um, so when I was in grad school in London, I founded um, kind of the first daily fantasy sports gaming company pre-FanDuel, pre-DraftKings. Um, so kind of non-salary cap daily gaming. Um, so built the, built the team, uh, built up the platform so you could kind of pick the, the top fantasy players for football and baseball and soccer. Um, so it's kind of a great experience. Uh, we ended up selling it to the Global Gaming Network, uh, which is based in California, who empowers the the daily fantasy sports games for a lot of bars and pubs throughout the world now so um kind of helped scale up that um i'd say uh 15 15 12 years ago well that's great and did you raise capital yourself for that company or was it did you manage to bootstrap it uh we rose some capital from innovative uh which is based out in new york um and they kind of helped with the tech platform um and then we have some angels kind of came in um, to help scale it but um as most betting industry and gambling companies are, was relatively cash flow uh, cash flow positive from the early days. So uh, it was a good good experience, and uh, you know, big fantasy sports player. So kind of marrying uh, business with pleasure. Yeah, I mean, as much as I'm a venture capitalist, and that's what I sell the world to the LPs and the entrepreneurs, and grow faster and all that. There is something cool about rate starting a company that doesn't need outside investors, and there's no liquidation stack, and when you sell the business, that's yours. And there's not a huge credit card to pay back on all the money you raised. Um, so there's advantages to that or even selling fast sometimes. Um, well, tell me about Rocket Internet. The, you know, I think the Samuel brothers are largely misunderstood outside of you know, some circles in Germany, but uh, I know you weren't working with them for very long, but I think sometimes Ali Samuel is famous for the 30 second meeting and like, go, 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 go. And I think a little injection of that can be good for somebody. If you stay with it for too long, I don't know about that. Tell us a little bit about your experience of working with the Samwares at Rocket Internet. Yeah, um, so I think, uh, you know, definitely a, a great experience. Rocket obviously has done um, some impress impressive things in the US and abroad, but um, was recruited by an individual called Pick Carbay, um, who was running kind of HelloFresh in the UK to to launch HelloFresh in the States. Um, so ended up the, the first hire I made was a good friend of mine, Dan Treeman, who has a lot of, let's say food operations experience. Um, and we worked together kind of with, a, with an army of interns in the beginning, scaling up the, the HelloFresh platform and product today, kind of setting up the distribution centers and, and getting the product up and running. Um, you know, obviously fast forward to, to COVID times, um, you know, 10 years later, I think, uh, 
eat from home and, um, you know, food delivery has obviously experienced kind of tremendous growth, but um, it was great in the early days kind of scaling the business, um, you know, especially kind of what has happened now with, with HelloFresh globally. Um, and, and Dan has kind of remained a, remained a good friend and actually worked with him uh, today on a few ventures. So um, it was a great experience. And I think, um, you know, the rocket model, even though it's kind of gone through different iterations is definitely kind of impressive what they were able to kind of build and scale. You know, another so Rocket Internet is now publicly traded Evergreen Fund, right? Isn't it? Um, they are publicly traded. I thought I saw last week or two weeks ago that they were taking it private again. Um, but I know, com- you know, some companies have you know spun out to their own kind of public vehicles. Um, so that the broader entity, I believe, is is kind of going private again. Okay, that's interesting because I, I find it sometimes even odd that we have this two and 20 structure with the 10 year term, where especially if the VC is raising a new fund every two and a half, three years, they're motivated to put some points on the board and get an exit to juice their ability to raise that next fund. And, or, you know, the, I've heard the average VC fund can even have a 14 year lifespan. Is it, is it, I mean, they're usually 10-year term with the ability to extend to limited partner consent. You can say, ah, let's not sell right before the Facebook IPO. We've been in it for nine years, you know. But um, if you have a publicly traded company, there could be liquidity for the investors, the LPs, and less pressure to almost abandon the entrepreneur or force them into an exit. I was just wondering, with your experience with Rocket, did that change your view or or, or maybe it wasn't? Uh, yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, haven't uh, haven't stayed super close to the Rocket Internet story, so probably can't comment directly on them. But I think just broadly with SPACs and direct listings, I think um, the evolution of kind of that growth and, and I guess I'd say pre-IPO company has changed dramatically in the last you know six to twelve months. I think you know outside of the amount of SPACs that were already available, the, the I'd say the leading kind of tier one venture and growth guys that are deploying SPACs now has really kind of changed, I guess, how you think about liquidity. Um, so, you know, TBD, how, how it all shakes out, but definitely, you know, evolving kind of, you know, before our eyes today. Yeah, no doubt. The It's interesting to see, uh, we had the rush, the public markets for venture financing in the late nineties, and that blew up like dynamite in a bad way. And then, and then you had this Sarbanes-Oxley slow crawl into the too expensive, why bother, don't want to pay for the compliance, to secondary market, stay private forever. And then now a realization that like, it's probably bad to not have the ability to acquire a company with the public and that entire thing. I think I think the US economy is robbing itself from not allowing companies to go you know, public earlier. And the SPAC seems to be this bizarre, cheaper, faster way of doing it um that that we're living through now so we'll see where that leads us but okay let's talk about b capital group and then move on to your current stuff so b capital group what founded by raj ganguly from bain capital and eduardo saverin from co-founder of facebook and then i guess you had um howard morgan co-founder of first round as the chairman and there's this special relationship with boston consulting group um, you were there for like a good four or five years, right? Or yeah, um, you know, had the had the privilege of moving out from uh, from New York to LA um, about September of of 2016 or 2015. So um, you know, kind of helped in the 
the early days kind of pre-fund, um, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, kind of a pretty incredible team given, you know, Raj and Eduardo's kind of operating and investing experience and, um, you know, kind of a unique model with the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, and, um, you know, thought it was, uh, thought it was a great opportunity, um, you know, when I was at IAC in New York. So I uh, made the move out from, uh, from New York to LA to help kind of, them kind of build the fund and build the platform. And how much of that felt like you're in a corporate venture capital environment compare, compared to a pure financial return? You know, uh, Boston BCG is, was an LP. Did they have economics in the GP or was it pure LP? Um, yeah, I probably can't comment on the economics, but I mean, I'd say the Jeff thesis, you know, obviously an independent fund with the, the underlying thesis of trying to find great returns for LPs, but BCG was, you know, extremely helpful in kind of, um, you know, seeing the value add of kind of technology companies for their clients. So definitely a win-win synergistic relationship where we'd invest in a company, um, you know, knowing that there was demand for kind of corporate, uh, you know, partnership or coordinate you know, corporate kind of, I'd say acceleration via kind of some contracts or business development. And then I think from the flip side, BCG was extremely smart about how they, they thought about the partnership with B Capital because they were really kind of introducing technology to, you know, all the, you know, the, some of the most prestigious companies around the world, um, you know, through the, the partnership with BCG and, and the portfolio. Um, so, you know, a, a great partnership. And I think kind of speaks to the, the quality of the portfolio today, you know, companies like Avidation Health and Isertis and NinjaVan, um, you're really kind of punching above their, the weight getting into some of these, some of these great kind of, you know, I'd say game-changing technology companies. I mean, when I think about, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about corporate venture capital, I've written books and a lot of our LPs are corporates, but the, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't for uh, a systems integrator, consultancy that recommends technology to their clients if they have in, if there's a category of three companies doing, I don't know, automated customer support or bots or something, some AI to automate something. If there's three in the category, BCG should be trusted to figure out and recommend impartially the best one. And if they've got, you know, a, a bet on one of those horses that they've invested in, it's hard not to push the one that they've funded even if it's not the best one. So that's like the negative side. The, the positive side is who are they to be recommending anything if they're not VCs? So a VC gets a fuzzy thumbnail of what the future looks like because startups come into your office and pitch you today what's going to be tomorrow. So by being in venture, they really have their finger on the pulse and they can rec make smart recommendations. If they're too motivated because there are LPs in one, you know, I kind of wonder. So that's sort of, you got to surf a fine balance of, of those two. Did that ever come up? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that was the case. I mean, BCG obviously does, does first and foremost what's best for their clients. So, you know, the example you mentioned, I, I don't think really came to fruition in, in my time with the fund. Um, you know, they took kind of an independent lens of, of you know, doing what's right for their clients. I think the the B capital anger really just gave them additional data points to make smarter decisions. They're seeing trends, they're seeing technology, they really kind of have the pulse on innovation. Um, so the recommendation they make for their clients, you know, first and foremost is what's best for their clients, but now it's kind of a, a more informed data-driven decision. And was, were you able to get portfolio companies to talk to partners at BCG and actually 
access their clients? Because I mean, every city I've been to, I think BCG has an office in, you know, they're kind of everywhere. So yeah. does that mean you're getting into banks in Poland and just really delivering value to the portfolio or maybe not as much? No, you know, extreme kind of global organizations, you know, B Capital is a global company with offices in LA, SF, New York, um, you know, Singapore, where kind of the, our Asian headquarters are and, and B2Gs obviously kind of global locations and reputation speak for themselves. So it's pretty synergistic in the fact that a lot of the technology and, you know, opportunities we were looking at were, were kind of global first. Um, and, you know, underlying thesis that Raj and Eduardo had at building B Capital was, you know, that innovation can really come from anywhere. Um, so I think that kind of speaks to both funds, given the, the large global footprint they have. Right. All right. Well, cool. So tell me about Antler. Uh, tell me the story. So when did Antler start? What was your role in it? And then we'll get to what you're doing today. Sure. Um, so Antler started uh, about four years ago in Singapore by Magnus Grimland. Um, who also spent time at Rocket Internet. Um, and he has really kind of built this global platform of Antler. We're in 15 countries around the world. Um, we have, I think, close to 200 employees, um, really investing and in kind of finding the next wave of entrepreneurs. Um, so kind of through, you know, Antler US, which I run with a, a colleague of mine, a former colleague at B Capital and um, another Rocket Internet um, alum, um, kind of a global program in the U.S. to be the first money into a business. So really institutionalizing the friends and family around. So we'll often kind of be the first check-in to someone that has, you know, a, a strong track record as, you know, has an exit, has, has kind of understand what it means to build a successful business or someone that, you know, comes from McKinsey, a Bain, a BCG or a Goldman and kind of has the operating a business experience to be successful. Um, so we'll work with them very closely for, anywhere from two weeks and kind of pay them a grant to, you know, leave their, leave their kind of prestigious job to kind of work with us on the ground to help build a business. Um, and then we'll usually invest in kind of the, the top portfolio companies that we kind of help create. So we'll, you know, usually invest, you know, a few hundred K at a, you know, in a convert node into these companies and be really the, the first money into the business. Um, and then we'll go to market and kind of help them scale and build up the platform. So as you mentioned before, with kind of the SPACs and the tremendous amount of capital, just broadly in venture and growth equity, um, you know, the general thesis is to be the kind of the first money in and really kind of create a, a winning portfolio. Um, so we have 18 companies in the U.S. Um, really scattered across both coasts, um, focused on, you know, everything from enterprise software to fintech to, to B2B to C. Um, so really kind of a, a broader portfolio approach where our thesis is we can you know, predict the next wave of, of tech winners by picking the, the entrepreneurs and the CEOs that really drive growth. And so um, you, you're sometimes giving a grant for someone to leave their job and kind of like, kind of reminds me of biotech where they pay somebody to walk around and try and buy an asset that's getting orphaned or something, but you pay someone for a couple of months or a couple of weeks or how long? Yeah, well, well, give an individual a grant, it's usually 10 to 12 weeks, um, and it allows us as a, as a business to really work with them. So we're, you know, hand in hand with weekly calls and, you know, daily Slack messages, thinking about areas, thinking about addressable markets, how to monetize a business. Um, so in that 10 to 12 weeks, a lot of the time, um, you know, we're really shaping, I guess, the, the future of the company. Um, and then, you know, I'd say in the, the latter portion of that three month you know, run, um, you know, the companies are starting to get traction, product market fit, where they're getting revenue, customers, and really starting to scale a business. 
Um, and that's the point where we come in and kind of, I'd say, institutionalize that friends and family round. So instead of going to, you know, a, a seed fund or trying to wrangle angels, we'll really be the first capital into the business. Um, and we really have taken almost, you know, Andreessen Horowitz approach to, to seed where we have kind of an in-house tech team, in-house product team, marketing. Uh, you know, we work very closely with our companies on fundraising. So, you know, when you come to Antler, um, you know, even if you've been successful in the past and have large exits, um, our thesis is we'll, we'll wrap it around with resources to make sure your next venture is as successful as possible. Um, so a lot of that is kind of the team in the U.S. and we have 15 people kind of scattered across uh, New York and L.A. Okay, so that sounds like a studio approach. When you're, when you're actually funding the company, being the first in and wrapping it with resources from this 15 people doing even some development work or engineering work, are you getting equity for that? Or are you wiring cash to them and some of that cash gets paid back to you for services or how does that work? Uh, we do charge a program fee, um, you know, depending on how long we work with the company. So usually it, it's very minimal and it usually only comes out if we do you know, investment. So if we do, a 300k investment will take back, you know, 50k or, or 25k based on kind of our resources. So it really depends, um, you know. It, and I wouldn't say it's kind of a traditional studio model, given kind of, you know, we're we're really letting the individuals drive and pick the company that they're successful in. Um, you know, we also do traditional, I'd say, pre-seed investing, where you know a company has you know traction, they have revenue, and they have customers, and they see value in the Antler team and the Antler resources. So, you know, a part of our business model, I'd say, is pre-seed investing where, um, you know, we're competing for, you know, you know, I'd say external deals and trying to win based on kind of the resources we have. Um, so it's kind of a, a dual-pronged business model. Yeah, I think, I think it's good. I mean, I remember the first time I heard Dave McClure tell me he was getting management fee and carry on his revenue. I thought that was pretty genius, you know, like, because the original accelerator model was, oh, we're going to take 6% or 3% of all these pre-seed companies. We've only got enough cash to run this for two years. Two years will, you know, zoom by and there's been no meaningful exit other than some aqua hire where nothing really came back. And so he started investing into the company and charging them fees. And I was like, dude, you're getting management fee and carry on your revenue. That makes you a genius, you know. But that's a, but that's an interesting model. But but it sounds like if you're 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 maybe de-risking the risk associated with that early stage by making sure they don't screw up certain things even and quickly, rapidly, cost-effectively deliver things they need. Um, and so it's probably a good, you know they see it coming. And, we, and to, to clarify on that, yeah, we I mean we only take uh, you know what we call a program fee as what we invest. So for you know, some reason we invest or the relationship's not a fit or, um, you know, we don't, we don't see, we, we, we don't really monetize that. And, you know, I think we have been very careful to, to really kind of work with individuals that see the value of the broader platform. So, you know, if an individual over that 10 to 12 week period, or, you know, even in some of our external seed deals or pre-seed deals, don't see kind of the immediate fit, um, you know, they can, they can, they can walk away. Um, so we, we have kind of been, I guess, careful on how we, how we built the program and selected that. Makes sense. And Brian, what do these deals look like typically? Like how many, uh, uh, you're the first in, what is the range of check size when you're taking your first bite into the company? Yeah, so it's a, it's a great question. So our, 
I'd say standard check size right now is usually kind of two to 300K at a, a two to $3 million convert no cap. Um, and then the way we're structured is we're really doubled down on the winners. Um, so this vehicle that I run in the US um, you know, with my two partners, we'll kind of continue to fund that, which we would call the traditional seed round, and then we'll fund it in the A round as well. Um, and then we also have a, a global venture growth equity fund that will fund companies kind of past the Series A. Um, so the interesting thing when entrepreneurs come to Antler is really kind of investing throughout, um, you know, a company's journey from, you know, pre-seed and idea all the way to growth. Um, so, you know, obviously fundraising is a, is a time consuming business where you want to make sure you pick the right partners. Um, so we offer capital through the, I guess I'd say the entrepreneurs kind of full stack and their journey. Okay. And if you're investing at two to 3 million caps and a company sells for 20, 30 million without raising more, you're getting a 10 X. So you're not dependent upon unicorn exits, right. To drive your cash on cash, absolute returns, or even a decent IRR. What, what, what are your thoughts yeah. around, you know, what is your thinking of that? Or, or is that a small percentage? Is it, are you 80% double down? With your fund, it sounds like Antler's got different vehicles. Yeah, Antler does have different vehicles. I mean, you know, our, I guess our core pre-seed fund and then the growth vehicle. I'd say that, um, you know, the interesting thing to your prior comment of, you know, getting a company to 20 to 30X is usually when a company kind of comes out of our, I'd say program or we do a CDL, a lot of the times, we'll, you know, it'll be under a $3 million valuation, but that company in the open market is, is probably worth six to $10 million right now. Um, so I'd say the, the vast majority of our companies immediately after we invest, there'll be a markup. Um, so, you know, somewhere in that six to 10 range. So those guys will usually raise, you know, raise two to 3 million and the, it'll be at a six to 10 in some form of, you know, their price, their convert no round. So there's, there's definitely a markup that occurs, but to your prior point, I think for us getting a hundred X, you know, that's us exiting and, at, you know, 300 or 200 million kind of in a, in a, in an acquisition or a secondary market. So our hundred X is different than someone that puts money in at, you know, a hundred and trying to, trying to buy it up to IPO. We, we invest so early, we often get out earlier as well. And on secondaries, do you have any policies for that? I mean, if you see a company's values going up and your inside view says, this is not working, that's different, but in a general positive rosy environment, like, We've got companies that I thought that I would be selling 20% of our position at Rubicon and 7BC, but I have trouble doing it. You know, I just got to tend to want to hang in a little longer. You know, you could put points on the board. It just seems like short term to do it. But I think if you're investing at these two and $3 million valuations and then Andreessen Horowitz puts in 30 million at a 250 million, it maybe makes sense to go to zero cost on everything and completely de-risk the fund. What are your even feelings or policies around when it makes sense for you guys to divest some or all? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And, you know, obviously each company is a, a case by case basis. And, um, you know, obviously given the growth environment we're now, I think, you know, obviously cyclical in nature. So we don't have kind of an underlying policy. I think the, the interesting thing about the Antler model is obviously the, the multiple vehicles that we talked about before. So, um, you know, even if our vehicle, you know, initially comes out at, you know, the series B or series C, you know, we do have another vehicle that kind of leads series A through C rounds. So, um, you know, it really depends on the circumstance. I'd say that, you know, obviously, um, you know, what's going on in the growth market is extremely competitive right now. And you know, a lot of companies are, 
are kind of raising quicker rounds at higher valuations than they were 16 months ago or a year, you know, even a year ago. Um, mm. So case by case basis, I mean, we don't have any internal policy, um, you know, over the course of the fund. I mean, it's a, it's a 10 year fund. So I think can make the best decisions kind of for our LPs in, in that kind of, in that course of time. And when you do a 200 to 300 K check, are you going solo bringing in the studio element and then hoping to raise a quick up round? like in the fair market or is your 200 to 300 highly syndicated? I would think some entrepreneurs really put it together. They say, we got antler. Why don't you get into what, what, what's happening there? We, we, we take that whole initial slug um, given kind of the hands-on approach we have. Um, and then we'll go out to market, you know, with the companies immediately after and target that six to 10 million range. So, you know, you know, we've had, um, you know, kind of numerous funds kind of invest, I'd say within, 30 to 45 days after we close, there's usually a, a subsequent round where it's a, you know, a two or three X kind of, you know, markup from our initial position. So we'd like to kind of, I'd say, you know, start off by taking the whole slug and then we'll kind of do super pro rata or pro rata in the next round or two. So what is your unrealized IRR? You must have some big unrealized IRR numbers that see uh, such a rapid growth. Um, um, maybe you don't want to no. disclose that, but. Uh, we, uh, I, I will, uh, I will spare, uh, <laughs> spare those numbers given, uh, kind of, you know, where we, where we are right now, but I'd say we, we had to have some great news. I think, um, about six or seven days ago, one of our companies, Marco Capital, which is in the trade finance space announced kind of around from struck capital in LA, as well as a, a $25 million debt facility. Um, you know, we've had a bunch of other companies kind of raised from Sequoia scout funds and different kind of, I'd say, you know, well-known, um, you know, either Bay Area or New York institution. So, um, you know, the portfolio is doing very well. Um, about 65 to 75% of our companies, you know, immediately kind of after we invested have, have already kind of risen that next round. Um, and we, we try and participate then in that round heavily as well. Got it, got it. And what's your, what's your sense? When, how many companies do you think you should have in a single vehicle portfolio to adjust the risk for the stage you're investing in? Like in general, if you've got like, all EBITDA positive companies that are generating 5 million quarterly EBITDA, you could have a smaller portfolio. If you're investing very early, you probably want to see a much wider set to not break a sweat when they, some of them start to run out of money. What do you think is the ideal set of companies for a pre-seed? You guys sound like, I would call this pre-seed. Yeah, no, I think, you know, we're really investing in, in, you know, I'd say about half of our business model is investing in great talent. Um, and then the other half is kind of, I'd say, traditional kind of pre-seed seed investing. Uh, but we'll probably do about 125 initial investments out, out of fund one. Um, so Antler um, has been around for kind of several years in Asia. And I think that's the the benchmark that we're kind of going for, given, um, you know, we do have kind of some, uh, you know, you know I guess, established kind of vehicle kind of parameters, but it'll probably be about 100 to 125 companies in one. Okay, and that's 100 to 120 in one vehicle? Was that the number? Yeah, in, in, in the first vehicle, correct. Yeah, I mean, I think that when you do that, it's, you know, it's illegal from the SEC to say, I guarantee you're not gonna lose money, but if you're well-connected, it's very unlikely that you would lose money if you've got a huge outlier in there. 119 are gonna bring down a little bit of the impact of it, 
but um, especially if it's viewed as a feeder fund for other vehicles or if a big percentage is on the double down, getting that wide set to create the opportunities to put most of the money is good. What percentage, what's the number of companies that you double down into? Or maybe it's hard to say. Like at Rubicon, we used to say 30% of our cash, of our dry powder is spread across 25 and then 70% is double down and generally never do more than 10%. So if you never did more than 10% into one and you did that five times as a double down, 50% of your fund is concentrated in five companies. So you're going to feel it when one of them is a Facebook or a Google, you know? At the same time, you've really taken away the risk of coming in early um, by the diversification. But, but what percentage is double down? Maybe that's a simple way of thinking of it. So I'd say the, the simple math is probably a third, but we'll do, you know, kind of our, our, our super pro rad in the next two rounds. Um, you know, when you run through the math and the numbers, it's obviously a little bit different given we have a, you know, a later stage vehicle. Um, so obviously, um, you know, doing what's best for kind of our LPs and the fund, but it's a little, little bit different that we have, um, you know, I guess a, a later stage vehicle, but about a third of the companies will, will kind of aim at doing super pro rad or pro rad in the next round, um, which is, you know, I'd say that usually kind of a seed or a small A, um, kind of given where we, we, we kind of work with them to kind of be after our investment. Um, and that's the benchmark. I mean, I think, you know, to your prior point, you know, we've had some early breakout winners in the U.S. where, you know, you can, can see kind of why we'd want to double down. So I think the, the future will, will tell the story. But, um, you know, so far, so far, we've had a couple of companies that we're really excited about. That's good. And so you guys are on the pulse of this pre-seed, seed, and even how they turn into late seeds and A's. What is, COVID has got winners and losers, but what are you seeing net-net? What's your sense of how the market has changed from you know q4 of 2019 to this amazing 2020 year we're so blessed <laughs> to be sailing through like our valuations That's i mean a two million it's hard to see a two or three million valuation get lower for a hot team coming out of goldman or rocket or wherever what have you yeah, seen on valuation? I mean, that's a, you know obviously i think it's a unique environment now i mean our our pace has picked up because we see a lot of opportunities in white pocket, white spaces, whether it's you know, esports, enterprise SaaS. I mean, I think you know, even though a lot of kind of you know real estate and you know, direct kind of you know interacting sectors have have felt the brunt of COVID. I think from a technology standpoint, and you know, not even in seed, but through venture and growth, and even the public markets, um, you know, this has been a, a pretty wild ride the last six months. So. You know, we've seen a huge uptick in deal flow. Um, you know, we're, we're, I'd say valuation where we get in is, um, you know, kind of what we pride ourselves on kind of getting in first. So, you know, we do kind of, you know, for some, some investments go higher, some investments go lower. It's really dependent on the team. But I'd say that the overall quality of individuals that have the, I'd say the quantitative and qualitative skills to really build a, build the venture back company has increased wildly in the last three months. And then, the sectors and the opportunities that they're chasing um, has really kind of given them a lot of white space where, you know, in 2019 or 2018, a lot of these companies they were going to build, whether it's, you know, esports, teleconferencing, digital health opportunities weren't there. Um, so it's been a, been a very interesting time for us. And we've been extremely busy on the deal flow front the last two, three months. And I was on a bunch of VC Zooms early in the pandemic, and I still do them, but it's, there was like a million a day at first. And I was surprised to hear so many VCs saying, 
I just can't invest over Zoom. Because for, for us, we've had an office in, I'm in the Valley and we've had an office in New York for the last 10 years. And so our New York team finds a deal or we find a deal and we talk to the founder over Zoom with the comfort that our other team has met them in person. But um, do you see, did you see people struggling to make a commitment without kind of Larry David looking you in the eyes in person or? Uh and are we done with the, I can't handle Zoom investing? <laughs> what do you see there? Um, I always love a good Larry David reference. Um, I mean, I, I think for our program, a lot of it, um, you know, the first two or three months we're, we're kind of adjusting. And, and, you know, I think the relationships that we, you know, have built kind of over, over time with other VCs and kind of, you know, doing more reference calls and, and really kind of trying to find different data points to, to supplement the, the information you get from a face-to-face -face meeting was uh, was a was a big priority for us. I think now it's it's definitely turned a little bit, um, you know, kind of everywhere from kind of say seed to growth, where you know not only are people kind of getting walking coffees, but I think they're kind of utilizing different data data sources, whether it's you know reference calls or speaking with you know individuals that have worked with them in the past. They're doing you know on sheet or off sheets. They're just more, I'd say resourceful and kind of how they diligence a founder um you know in Adler we really invest you know people first so that's kind of yeah. you know our job is to make sure that the, that person is you know triple a quality and you can tell a lot by someone but you know if they worked at Goldman for 10 years and you know went to HBS or went to Stanford I think that's a good quantitative data point but we we kind of pride ourselves on kind of doing the, the qualitative research and you know doing those reference calls and really speaking to people so um, it's been an adjustment, but I think, you know, net net where we've netted out is definitely more efficient where we can, you know, really kind of get the wheels on the bus churning faster and, and be more diligent and kind of how we, how we look at a founder. Um, so that's kind of how our, our stance has been, you know, it was a, it was a, a two or three month adjustment, but I think now we're probably a little bit more efficient than we were kind of pre COVID. Yeah. I think in, in a world of social injustice where, you know, there's not a lot of women in the industry, despite there being plenty, it's still nothing like it should be. Um, people of color, their, their involvement. And in this world of investing over Zoom, where we're saying, well, I only want to invest in deals if Brian knows them and I've known Brian for years. And it starts to be uh, this insulated white male thing. And, um, just something to think about when you're saying, all right, well, if I can't meet you in person, I got to know that you know a lot of people I can back channel. Like, I don't ask for references. I make my references on people I figure out that know you. And if you're dealing with people from outside of some of these privileged circles, it gets harder in this COVID world, you know? So it's just something to think about, um, you know, to-, to We definitely, I think we pride ourselves on Diversity. So, I mean, a big, uh, a big portion of our, um, you know, investment thesis is, you know, a lot of those individuals that, um, you know, you mentioned before, you know, the the resources that they, you know, have historically had to build the company have been lacking. And I think, you know, our our underlying thesis is we have kind of that underlying platform, whether it's you know fundraising, marketing, product, tech, to kind of help them get through that, um, you know, that through through that kind of stereotype. So. Um, that's a big push internally at Antler. And Brian, that's good to hear. That's good to hear, and it's it's needed. With with you going from New York City to LA and back to New York, without upsetting either side, all everybody at the same time. What's your perspective on 
I mean, I, I love LA and, and I'm from New York originally. I've been out in the Valley forever, but like, I think LA is just a creative place and it's a fun place. Whereas I would never want, I wouldn't wish anyone to live in the Valley if you're single. Um, but what's your, what's your sense of LA become, it's the second biggest city in the world and it's not number two when it comes to startups and venture yet. What's your sense? Yeah, I mean, um, I'd say when I moved out to LA five years ago, the ecosystem was definitely um, really focused on consumer and media and really leveraging, I'd say, the, the Hollywood kind of, you know, I'd say corporates and conglomerates that were there. I think the tide has definitely shifted and, you know, companies like Dollar Shave and Honey that have had meaningful exits have really kind of, I'd say, cropped up a new wave of companies. Um, so, you know, I think LA on a whole, definitely long, I think there's still some vertical buy companies are really kind of operating in four or five verticals. And it's probably not as diverse as New York or SF from a, from a sector perspective. But um, I think it's tough to argue with kind of the, the traction. And there's definitely been an uptick, I'd say, in the last you know two or three years, not only on, you know, the number of startups that come out of LA, but also the number of venture funds that are, are kind of raising larger funds and really focused on the ecosystem, um, you know, even, you know, Silicon Valley kind of heavyweights that have a satellite office down there now. I think they've there's been definitely been a push by LA to to really kind of diversify out that kind of consumer and media the last year. You probably know Kelly Purdue because he was he had Rotohog, so he was in fantasy sports like a way long time ago, like you were. But he he I went down to LA to hang out with him in maybe more than ten years ago. He took me on a walking tour of Santa Monica, and there's nowhere maybe there is now, but at the time I said, there's no way you could walk in San Francisco or the Valley and hit 11, you know, Mucker Labs, you know, accelerators. It was, and then you had like, what was it? Amplify was down in Venice, but that's yeah. like, you could walk that still compared to a lot of places. So I thought it was pretty interesting to see that density. It's almost like that's what bad traffic will do to you. They'll force everybody to be in walking distance because driving to Beverly Hills is like, you need a helicopter, right? Yeah, no, it's true. LA definitely, you know, having lived it, uh, doing the reverse commute from Santa Monica, Manhattan Beach, I mean, it's definitely tough driving. I think the positive though, is that, you know, Venice and Santa Monica, there's really kind of pockets of, you know, not only funds, but, you know, early stage incubators and, and companies. So there's, it's definitely, you know, from a, a day working perspective, for people not in tie adventure, definitely a little bit tough to navigate given, you know, lack of kind of public transportation. But, you know, as you mentioned, I think there's three or four pockets in LA and Culver City is definitely on the up and up where, um, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of move and kind of, you know, I'd say interact with people in person and, you know, TBD if that even matters in six months with COVID. Um, so, you know, LA, I think is, is, is probably well positioned, I guess, given from the, the current work from home environment, given the amount of kind of talent they have down there. Well, I've only been starting to take meetings recently. And the funny thing is I do a fair amount of driving from SF to Palo Alto and all around here. But um, when I get in my car, I'm like, who am I going to call? Who am I going to call whenever I get in my car? And now with COVID and lockdown, I'm just like booked. I don't have this like office hours of I'm going to call my aunt and I'm going to call that entrepreneur while I'm in LA traffic and enjoy it. So I kind of, you know, you know, I, I don't complain about the LA traffic when I'm down there because just it's an opportunity to get on the call or have somebody in the car with you. But well, well, cool. So what do you, 
what tell me about the international side it sounds like not everybody has the international component that you have so a lot of people just having the option to talk to someone about international that has resources on the ground where are you guys outside the united states like wh what are the cities uh, right yeah so we're in 14 countries around the world um in new york i mentioned we're la new york focus um our core hub internationally is in singapore um so we've been in singapore for four years uh we launched um India last month, uh, we're in London, Oslo, um, Sweden, Amsterdam, um, Sydney, um, as well as in Nairobi and Africa. Um, so definitely kind of a global presence. Um, and we all, I think, leverage kind of internal kind of data and tech and resources. Um, and I think it's especially helpful for companies that want to expand internationally to, to kind of put them in touch, you know, on the ground with that team or, um, you know, corporate partner or venture funder on the ground. So uh, kind of a global first approach to, to what we're trying to build. And sometimes LPs are just these anonymous pension funds and endowments that have nothing to do with the GP layer or the, the startup layer of the stack, but other times they do. Do you have, like, is Tomasek an LP in Singapore or is it large corporations or families? What's the cross-section of LPs, if that helps us understand Antler from the outside? Yeah, um, so it's a great question. I think, you know, can't comment on, on too much specifics, but publicly, um, you know, Eduardo Saverin, who obviously worked with IB Capital is, a, is an early stage investor. So individuals that have, you know, a successful kind of track record as, you know, operators and investors seem to understand the, the Antler model pretty well. And then, um, you know, Schroeder's, which is a large kind of financial institution, um, you know, we disclosed that, I think about four or five months ago. Um, is so that, is that Schroeder's Adbeck? So Schroeder's acquired Adbeck, which was a $10 billion fund of funds out of Zurich in New York. Do, do you know, is that the same thing or is that different Schroeder's? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the European, the British based um, investment management. I'm not sure on the exact. Uh, That's okay. Exact okay. Because okay. the founder of Adbeck, which sold to Schroeder's is one of our, you know, our largest investor out of Switzerland. Um, but, but he stepped down a few years ago because of age, but, um, okay. All right. Well, awesome. that, that, that's great. Uh, and, 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 um, Brian, in closing out any predictions on the exit market, are you going to see pre-revenue companies banging out SPACs or what's the, what's the exit market for an early investor like you and even us? Um, you know, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think obviously a lot of it is driven by, you know, public markets, which, you know, I think depending on who you talk to, I think there's obviously some, you know, you know, un unforeseen kind of things that the market's going to have to take in like election and kind of COVID and how it evolves. But I think from a, a venturing growth perspective, you know, there's, there's really been an influx of capital from, from everyone under the sun. So I think that the exits will continue to be there and the capital will always be there for the best companies. So, um, you know, I think this COVID environment has really kind of, you know, minted, minted large tech as kind of, I'd say a potential acquirer as, as well as kind of a, you know, exit option for a lot of these startup companies. So, you know, my prediction is definitely, I think 2020 is going to be a, a record year for, for growth for, you know, the majority of tech companies. Um, and I think the exits will definitely be there next year. Sounds good. Okay, my friend, well, listen, um, we'll be thinking of you when we see these early stage deals. 
and hope you can take him to the next level. And don't forget us when we want to invest in him again. And it sounds like it's a pretty broad, no pretty broad remit. And I know you're LA yeah. and New York focused, but will you invest in companies across the US or Canada or where do you? Uh, across, yeah, we're, we're global in nature. Um, so, I mean, we, uh, a good portion of our companies are in Chicago. We just announced our, our Latin American office down in Rio. So, I mean, we do the, the full Americas is the best way to put it. So, um, you know, if you're an entrepreneur anywhere around the globe, um, you know, definitely reach out to Amler. I think we have a, a unique model and can definitely, um, you know, help no matter where you're located. It's amazing. I think it's great. I think it's great to see talented people doing what you're doing in a way that's not going to lose money and could potentially make a lot of money. So it's all good stuff. Okay, Brian, listen, thanks so much. Stay safe and hope to see you in the real world sometime soon. Likewise. Great to have you. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.